I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today is Will Austin. He is the founder and chief executive officer of Boston Schools Fund. Will started his career as a teacher at Roxbury Preparatory Charter School and was nominated for Massachusetts Teacher of the Year. He subsequently served as co-director of Roxbury Prep and then as chief operating officer for Uncommon Schools, overseeing Roxbury Prep's expansion from one to four campuses. He is a lifetime resident of Boston and a graduate of Boston Public Schools. Will studied government at Harvard College and holds a master's degree in education from Tufts University. Will, good morning. Hey, good morning. So where, where am I finding you today? I'm in my attic. Okay. How's that going? It's it's quiet up here. Um, nice. It is. It is. Um, I'm not, I mean, I, I know these things get taped and aired later, but, you know, we're, we're I guess, now at week three-ish of schools and kind of more, you know, kind of white collar yeah, yeah. kind of jobs being closed, folks working from home. And so, yeah, I mean, um, I'm in my attic. Okay. Well, it's good. It, the sound quality is fantastic from your it, attic. It, it's eaved. It's kind of, you know, it's not, it lets, I don't want to, it it's not a big finished fancy attic. Um, there's about a foot or two above my head and I'm sitting. <laughs> Which is zero echoes. It's good. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, it's good. Well, we're excited to have you on the show today. You and I met many years ago many when years I, ago. I think the first time I, I saw you, you were pitching what is now Boston Schools Fund. Yeah. And uh, you talked then, as you do now, about high-quality seats. Can you talk about what is a high-quality seat and, and how many of them do we have in Boston? Yeah, um, it's really fun. I mean, thanks for inviting me to do this. Um, and, you know, love, obviously, you, Jill, and Neeraj, and Ross, and all the folks at, at Shaw and the work you've you've done and you are doing. Um, and it's fun to kind of share a lot of this work with you guys. And it's, it's fun to talk about a little bit with you today. Um, yeah. you know, I'm a bit of a stickler about like words and terms, as you know, um, Jill. Mm-hmm. So I often talk first about this concept of a seat. Um, because in, in education and in public policy, our kind of unit of analysis tends to be, I think, too abstract. You know, we talk about programs, we talk about schools, um, but those things are different shapes and sizes and complex. For me, mm-hmm. it's all about a seat because a seat is all about one kid. And mm-hmm. the only way you can really hold yourself accountable, whether or not you have an equitable system, is whether you're giving each kid in each seat what they need um, and what they deserve. And so right. I've always kind of thought about schools in that way. Um, I think a lot of it comes up from growing up in the city and going through the school system and just seeing, you know, the, the, you know, the, the kind of the ravages of a lottery system we exist in here. Um, Can you talk a bit about that? Cause you meant you, I remember you talking about this the first day I ever met you, that you, you talked about you and your friends mm-hmm. all living on the same street or in the same neighborhood and yep. where they are today can you talk yeah. about that a little bit? I mean, bit? it's, it's when I was, you know, so I took the Latin test and I'm sure we'll talk about that today because for better, or for worse, you can't talk about education in Boston without talking about the exam schools. Um, yeah. I took the Latin test as it was called then and still called now, um, the weekend after, um, the Charles Stewart murder, you know, and so for folks who know a lot about the criminal and racial history of the city, that that's kind of a, it's a stain 
um, on 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 how we have acted as a city. You know, talk if, about what happened there. And and you, so you were thirteen. Yeah, no, it's eleven. Um, eleven. Okay. And right. there was a man named Charles Stewart, white man, um, who um, claimed that his pregnant wife was shot and killed uh, by a unnamed black male assailant on the top of Mission mm-hmm. Hill. Um, in mm-hmm. Boston, um, p- technically part of Roxbury. And at this time, especially 30 years ago, not the kind of gentrified version you see in, in parts of Mission Hill now that, you know, some of the right. colleges have kind of spread down there. And so the response was public outcry. Um, and stop and frisk, I don't think like fully encapsulates what was done to communities of color for a good week or two. Um, mm-hmm. You know, black men were pulled out of homes, off streets in this kind of this frenzy to find this unnamed assailant who of course Mm. didn't exist. Um, And it's so terrible and tragic. You'd almost think it'd have to be a movie, but it was all done for life insurance. He ended up committing suicide a week or two later. It was crazy. And so I remember when I was going to take the Latin test, I mean, that was on the radio in the car. Like that's what we were like, it was like, what's going on with this case and what's happening. Um, And you know, when you're a kid, especially a white kid, um, in the city, like you, you don't have an evolved sense of like race and structures and equity. And so yeah. it wasn't until I was older that it kind of, it really kind of snapped for me that while that was going on, I was being driven to take a test. And mm. while I was being driven to take to that test, there were kids in my class and on my street who weren't taking that test. Mm. Um, kids who grew up in similar households to me, walked to school together, went to the same elementary schools, all that other stuff. And, but for where we got to go to school. We had really, really different life outcomes. And so there were six boys on my street, all in the same grade. Two of us got into exam schools. I went to Latin school and this kid, Jamie, at the end of the street, went to Latin Academy. He moved to Colorado, became an engineer. He's got a great life. The other four boys, not so much. Only two of them graduated from high school. Two were incarcerated. One was murdered in 2001. Um, and, you know, there's not, I'll say again, we weren't that different. Like we grew up literally on the same place. I mean, it was almost like a random control trial. Um, and so at, you know, I think that that again, you don't quite understand that when you're a kid, but when you start to kind of get older and you experience more things, and especially in college, it just becomes really clear to you, like what 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 the structures create. Um, and what what was different about the six boys, you and your five friends? I mean, it's really just that I went to like we took the test. Like, I mean, and, and if this even comes yeah. up to now. I mean, there was a big initiative just this fall. To have did you kids. all go to the same elementary we school? Did. We, we, Saint Greg's. We did St. Greg's. did. So Greg's. just some of you, Took some of it was it your parents or your teachers or who who prompted you to? It take was definitely. The test? For, Why were you one of the? For students? me, it was definitely my parents and my sister. So my sister's two years older than me, so she had already taken the test and gotten in. Um, and yeah. my father, um, you know, very you know, like many kids in the fifties and sixties, managed to get into the school, but then also get managed to kicked out within a year or two. Um, and so he had kind of always made it clear to us that when we were at that age, we were going to, you know, try to, try to go <laughs> and get through. <laughs> try to, try to go and try to stack. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I think it was probably that piece. Um, you know, I think it's like, you know, it's fancier terms you learn as you're older, things like social capital, social networks, that kind of stuff. Um, right. but, um, you know, and, and, and again, like to, to this day, just this fall was the first year that that test was administered during the school day for kids, right? right. Up until a year ago, 20, you know, 29 years later, you still had to kind of know the random person who knew where the random form was to show up on the Saturday morning for the test you may not have heard of. Um, right. You know, and it's ama- It's kind of crazy and enduring that 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 structure lasted for that long. 
Do you think we'll see different admission, um, a scope of admissions this year? Because, or I guess it'd be next year because um, the test was given to everyone this year. Oh, no. Or do you think? No, no, no. I'm bad at predicting the future. Um, like especially without data, I'd be really curious to know what the actual uh, test rate was. Like how many kids took it. Um, yeah. And that would be really where, interesting. Yeah. And what schools, they go to schools, right. Yeah. And all that. Like, so I think there's like a data collection piece you'd really want to like deeply understand again, like, you know, and I want to make this all about the exam schools, but like a lot of this is gonna be tough to judge because there's a decent chance the test is going to change next year. And so right. who knows kind of where this bounces, but I mean, all that aside, kind of like just to kind of name it, like it's, it's tricky because the exam schools are just three schools out of 181 or so like public and private schools in the city, but they mm-hmm. serve so many kids. They're so big. They're we, so big. Um, they're so big. They're about what? A quarter of all kids seven through 12. Are in yeah. Them. Quarter yeah. kids seven through 12 go to one of those three schools. And so like, it's really tough to like, you know, you don't want to, you want to focus on the hundred or 178. And we do, but at the same time, schools that have that size and have that demand, like end mm. up, you know, creating a lot of, you know, I think policy and political interest and that's, that's not going anywhere. So would you would you say every seat in the three exam schools is a high quality seat? It's funny because I can't answer that because I haven't I haven't done diligence. I mean, so like mm. for 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 us, like I don't I and our organization don't define high quality through a bunch of cut scores. We define it through a process, um, mm-hmm. and that's where you can be a little bit advantaged in the sense that like if you're not making public policy and you know we're you know we're a nonprofit trying to help folks. You know, we can yeah. create a process that we feel like is high quality, and that helps us come to a certain kind of estimation of the schools. And so, how would they qualify for being a high quality seat? So, the, and kind of take folks through like the process we go through. Like the first thing we do is we just scour, you know, publicly available data. Um, you know, there's a lot of information on schools out there. Um, mm-hmm. Department of Education, Boston Public Schools website. You know. We have some NDAs with different school systems around how, what kind of data we can get, that sort of stuff. And so mm-hmm. you can start by just kind of looking at what, what folks are doing in terms of academic outcomes. And, and I say that broadly, academic outcomes, because there's a lot underneath there. Um, you're not just talking about test scores and growth. You're talking about teacher tenure, talking about chronic absenteeism. I mean, so there's a lot of like academic factors that we track and take into account. Um, and you do this in charter, public, and parochial schools. So yes, this is not just an assessment. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you're looking at for every mm-hmm. kid who mm-hmm. is in the city of Boston, how many of them have access to and are sitting in a high quality seat? Yeah. And we come to that estimation through this process and getting to school. So, you know, understanding academic outcomes and then also disaggregating because mm-hmm. especially in this city, Averages can be deceiving when you look into school performance um, among any of these outcomes you're talking about. You might see something that I, on average looks like it's above above average or above 50th percentile. But when you tease out subgroups, you can quickly see that that may not be true for for most kids in that building or enough kids in that building. And so we and try. To, you, yeah, go ahead. Was, no. Well, when you so and you were saying so the reason you haven't assessed the three exam schools is you're really looking for. Where, where is you're kind of, I would assume you're making an assumption that there are high quality seats in those schools and the, and that you're looking at this gap, like, are you trying to discern? So where are, where can, where can Boston schools fund make investments to schools that can grow? Cause those schools actually don't probably have much capacity to grow. One or two of them might have a little bit, but like these, Mm -hmm. those schools, especially Latin school is like 
ruthlessly efficient. I mean, those schools are jam-packed. They use every yeah. inch and every classroom is filled really to the gills. And so you're right. Like part of this is like, you know, we want to identify high quality schools. But we're also trying to increase, uh, you know, opportunity access to them. And so those three schools, you know, to a certain extent don't require that. And so mm. we're doing academic outcomes. We want to get to a sense of, of how schools are doing relative to a bunch of different academic measures. Um, and the second thing we're going to look after that is kind of enrollment patterns, um, especially demand. Um, you know, if you have the idea of like, I have this great idea, I want this school to serve more kids, but parents aren't picking it, um, then that one, that's telling you something. It means that despite whatever you think about the school, you know, families think differently from you, um, hmm. and one. And then two, you're trying to assess if you want to add seats, whether there's going to be sufficient demand on the other side of that. And that that's fairly, I mean, some of that data is a little ugly um, because of the different choice systems and the different way things are weighted. But you can start to really piece together a little bit of a picture of like how much a school is in demand. And then also what kind of populations those schools serve, especially if they have specialized populations. Um, mm -hmm. We're going to look at that. We're going to think a lot about the kind of sustainability of the school, especially the financial sustainability of the school. Um, you know, if you've been in any city long enough, you have this kind of pattern of um, schools rising and falling. You know, mm -hmm. why uh, is that? I don't know because it's America. Um, <laughs> but like, but, but wait, so if it's America, a, like I would, I would impose on that. Yeah, that was a hawthorn yeah. quote. That was my classic <laughs> education shining through. Um, <laughs> but but like, but, but no. is it because of leadership or is it because yeah, of family engagement? Or I think it's related to leadership. It's kind of the whole thing. But a lot of it, I think, yeah. I've seen is that schools have a lot of trouble. Even schools that have you know full autonomy have a lot of trouble. Um, building out financial and planning models for their programs. And mm. so, you know, mm. you build stuff sometimes that's not sustainable because you haven't thought through how you're basically going to afford it a couple of years out. So you go and get a grant because you want to start this new program within your school. That grant is two to three years. You get to the end of two to three years, the money's gone, the leader's changed, and then all of a sudden you're back at square one. And so like really yeah. forcing schools to think really long-term about their planning um, and as it relates to what they can afford really makes a lot of sense. And the last, so yeah, I it's think, this leadership piece. <laughs> well, I think that cycle is a really interesting thing to point out because it, it, what, what we invest in when it comes to, I think all of these schools, right? Charter, public, yeah. and parochial is we invest in failure. So as a school fails, we put more money into it. Those yes. boosts seem to then cycle through and and the school gets better over time and then we take money away. Yep. And so it, it becomes very cyclical, right? Yeah. And 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 the thing I, I always have to remind myself about this too, it's like schools are funny things because they, you know, they exist for like one moment at a time. And like, you know, they happen every year. And so mm -hmm. it is this funny kind of in thing that like a kid could be in like say sixth grade in a school and it's good quote unquote but then by eighth grade could be in the same school and somehow it is quote unquote bad like that's just kind of like fascinating and it could be that there were kids who already graduated from that school and don't feel the effects of it so like the timing of mm. this stuff is always like kind of like odd um and then leadership obviously really matters um you know our experience is working with the 37 schools we work with now um you know principal training and tenure really matters um, mm -hmm. you know, it's not that you can't have relatively new or inexperienced people be principals. You can, and they can get good with support. But in general, the more experienced folks have both in and before that leadership role tends to be fairly predictive of like how effective they can be. Um, mm -hmm. we worry a lot about leadership teams. 
um, and like how principals kind of distribute leadership amongst staff, especially among teachers, because teacher leadership is really important, like for the sustainability of schools. Um, mm-hmm. And we also really, really think hard about family engagement in this bucket, for lack of having like a fifth bucket. But we think it's really yeah. important that a school has a really healthy relationship and communication system with families. I mean, and typically right. it's that it's under the like either directly done by or run through the leadership of the principal to do that work. Um, mm. And we think that's really important because I think A, it just makes schools better. Um, but then B, it gets to your piece about sustainability. Um, the right. better engaged families are in the decision making and planning of the school, the more likely it is the school is, would be to sustain over time. So that's the way we think about and just, it. Yeah. And so, and just to, to tie it to economics, when a school is full, when all of the seats are full, um, it, it, there's more money going mm-hmm. To that school, because ultimately schools get funded on a per student basis. Correct. And and so it may also be. I mean, with the three exam schools, given that they really are pretty much full all the time, it's very predictable for them. They know oh, yeah. what revenue to depend yes. on from the city. Yes. And 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 so in these other cases where there's ebb and flow because of lack of investment or overinvestment, principals change, teachers change, etc. That that. That causes a lot of unknowns every year. Every year, and, yes. Okay. And I mean, like when you right. look at schools, like you know, and you, I know you guys know these schools really well because all the work you've done with My Way Cafe out there. But like, if you look at the East Boston schools, for example, over the last like ten years, I mean, yeah. it is it is zigzag, zigzag, zigzag. Right. Hmm. Very hard for the for to make longstanding programs where you have these spikes in enrollment in different grades at different times. Um, and so we're thinking about enrollment patterns as past the kind of past performance, but then also planning for kind of future performance, I'll take low and steady over high and volatile, right? Yeah. Like you want to know what you're, what you're working with um, because it's really hard. And good example is one of the schools we work with uh, is the Manning in Jamaica Plain. It's a, it's an inclusion school that specializes in supporting um, all students, but particularly students with emotional impairments. It's a pretty small school. Like they generally only serve anywhere between like 155 to like 165 kids a year, but they Mm -hmm. are at that number almost every year. And there might be some dips in here and there, one, two kids down a class, but they have, they have a really tight model. And so because of that, they're able to, they were able to plan using their budget and knowing how weighted funding works to build a program and a staffing model that supports that group. Um, So it doesn't have to initially be big to work. It just has to be, I don't know. Rational, I guess the right word. So when you were on the other side of this, back in your Roxbury prep days and uncommon school days yeah. when you were both a teacher, yeah. you heard teacher of the year, yeah, actually like candidate that. at yeah. one point, and, um, and, and then you were the chief operating officer of uncommon schools as Roxbury prep expanded, that, I mean, that, that experience must deeply inform the work that you're doing right now as you're trying to identify which schools should be invested in to help them grow. Yep. How do you, how do can you just talk a little bit about your work earlier on and, and what it makes you think about as you go in and, and assess these schools? Yeah. I mean, I think the most important thing about my experience for 13 years uh, working there is that I was just so incredibly fortunate to wear, work with and for incredibly talented and moral people for a long time. Um, and so it'd be really difficult for me to give you all of the stuff that I learned from all the different people I worked with. Like it was just, there were so many talented committed people there for so long. 
Um, so I mean, a couple of things. Like one is that as a teacher, I really my first real big lesson was the value of relationships in child and development and learning. Um, mm-hmm. You know, school is academically rigorous. And at the same time, we had a pretty comprehensive advisory system where you were calling parents, you know, every week or two and logging them. We had every, enrichment every day, summer school opportunities. And so I had so many experiences in my first and second year where I'd be struggling um, to connect with a kid in class or to get them to kind of academically perform. And inevitably, it was because I didn't have a relationship with them or mm. I didn't know their family well enough. And so, you know, especially when you're first year teacher, you're so concerned about getting your content right and my packets ready and all this other stuff. And kind of once you get through that fire, you really quickly realize that it is really about relationships and how much and what you know about the kids and what they know about you and, and that being really authentic. Um, I mean, I learned a lot about race. Um and the culture of power. I mean, it's something that I've always been aware of and attuned to, I guess, like growing in the city, growing up in the city. Mm-hmm. But when you are, especially in the early days of the school, one of the few white staff members of predominantly staff of color with leaders of color and 100% students of color, um, I learned a lot about um, how to try to have conversations about race and what it means to try to kind of, I guess what the term that's used sometimes now is being, you know, being not just concerned about diversity, but actually being actively anti-racist. And so that was a big part of that experience, especially you know, the founding of the school is based on that concept. And it's called Roxbury Prep for a reason um, mm. to say like, we are going to have a high quality school in Roxbury and people will right. pick it. I learned a lot about middle school math, <laughs> like a lot about <laughs> math, um, you know, and, and I think instructional techniques are great. And, you know, and I think people can always find new activities. But what I found is what separated good teachers from really great teachers was their passion and love of content. And so when I think of the great teachers that did phenomenal things with kids that I worked with, it was because yeah. they knew and loved their content. Um, and that really pushed you to, to really, really give that passion to kids, but also make you really a, a very effective instructor. Um, that's what I mean. And, and it's fun. I mean, like, I think the big thing I learned, too, is like, I learned about risk. I mean, the thing that's really tough about being a teacher, especially when you're starting out, is that you don't know if anything's working. Like you right. can, like you have form of assessment, like you're doing your own grading, but you don't know. And you like kind of have to just trust your process and like work hard and hope that you're doing the right thing for kids. And you're, and you know, you don't know for a while if you're actually like, if it's working. And so it takes, you learn a lot about kind of resilience and about, you know, you know, and just making stuff on the fly um, yeah. because you just you just don't know if it's working. And when you start to get those feedback cycles that it actually is moving somewhere and kids are working, like it's it's a whole other ball game. But it takes a long time to get to that point. So you know, it's interesting. All of what you're saying is interesting. In particular, I'm thinking about your comments on race and how does that factor into the assessments of where high quality seats are in, in the city of Boston. Yeah. I mean, so one thing that we've held ourselves accountable for as we've built out like a set of partners across the city is that we wanted to make sure that the student population of the 37 or so schools we work with now reflected the demography of the city, um, mm-hmm. that you could create, you could create greater inequities through a process of having high quality schools expand, especially given the physical location mm. of those schools and also kind of assignment patterns and assignment rules. And so yeah. we, as we kind of 
annually move along and pick schools to work with. We are actively managing against what is the percentage of students of color in our portfolio, Black and Latinx students? What are the percentage mm-hmm. of students with disabilities in our portfolio? What is the percentage of students who are uh, identified as English language learners in our portfolio? What is the economic disadvantage number? And so part of it is us just holding ourselves accountable to that. Um, when I think about this more, like more broadly, like, I mean, the reality is, is that Boston is a highly segregated city, um, physically. Um, Mm -hmm. and so it's almost like the schools are feature, not bug, right? So if you have, if you have areas of the city, they're essentially redlined by race and by income. We should not then be surprised that the school compositions track that, especially given the changes in the assignment rules from about six or seven years ago, which because uh, we moved to neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, they assignment. said yeah. The the term at the time was schools quality schools closer to home, um, right. and so it doesn't in except in some rare cases it doesn't actually guarantee you a neighborhood school, but your odds significantly increased of you getting Mm -hmm. a neighborhood school. And so when you track the enrollment patterns of many schools, you see a demographic shift in schools and Boston public schools specifically um, Mm -hmm. over the last, you know, seven years. Um, You know, I think there's a lot of different ways to like hang ring this statistic and, you know, methodology and such. But, you know, one of the more arresting kind of facts that came out of the analysis of student assignment in the city, I guess it would have been a summer and a half ago, a year and a half ago, two years ago, is that you know students in Manapan had a five percent access chance to a school that was tier one in the BPS system, which is their definition of quality, versus eighty percent right. in the northern part of the city. So uh, why why is it there just there were just all all of the schools that were in Manapan were lower performing? Yeah, and like we can, this is where you get into a separate kind of policy and political debate about what the definition of quality is and. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's a separate conversation, which is a whole other wormhole that we we'll get into about whether or not school quality is simply a reflection of socioeconomics of the school. Now, I'm mm-hmm. not going to go down that line. I'm going to just reject that on principle. But you mm-hmm. know, a lot of people argue that it's like, well, those schools are good because they have mostly middle class families. And like you're supposed to and like there's a wink wink when people say middle class. Right. Right. There's code for that. Right. So. I mean, a lot of it, I think, has to do um, with, I mean, I'd say a couple things. One has to do with, I mean, again, leadership, right? I mean, there's a reason why there are certain areas of the city that have developed high-quality schools. I mean, part of it, I would say, is that a lot of those schools that are high-quality, especially the BPS schools we work with, we have very tenured principals who know what they're doing and have been in their yeah. buildings for a really long time. Um, and so there's a little bit of, like, to come back to your point earlier about the cyclical nature of things. When schools are strong and in, in kind of performing, if done well, they kind of you know they kind of stay in their place and they continue to grow and they build systems and culture and all this other stuff. You have a school that's kind of in the bubble or struggling, and you have principal turnover, um, which there's a lot of now, not just in Boston, but that's just more general around the country now. Then you have this thing where like you got a pr- school that's doing okay but not great, got a new principal two to three years, that person leaves, new person comes in for a year, they leave, and then like. I think a lot of it's probably tra- tracked back to like instability and leadership is, is my guess. Um, right. But I've never, it's, I've never really thought of like the root cause of it. I kind of just like approach it as it is, um, if that makes sense. And the other part yeah. that I'll just say like pretty plainly is like I'm a big believer in kind of like understanding positive deviance. And so th- it may be true that, that there's a lower number of higher quality available seats in Mattapan, but 
you know, just north of Mattapan in Roxbury is the Hale, which yeah. is one of the best schools I've ever been in and mm-hmm. serves 95% of students of color, primarily African-American students. And so, so is what is what happens then? It because there are such little access to high quality schools within the Mattapan neighborhood, families choose to go. They they choose to be less proximate to their homes, but yeah. have access to higher quality so, schools. Do you I mean, see that happening? Yeah, there's some research on it in other cities that have more clear assignment systems. But there's a trade off between physical distance and like people's appraisals of quality. You know, like let's right. say like. We don't have it here, but say that you gave schools a letter grade, there's a certain amount of distance people would give for a letter. Like they'd go an extra yeah. two miles to go from a C to a B, right? They'd go from right. an extra, like whatever. Um, well, we have numbers. I mean, we do the same thing, yes. right? With yeah. One, two, I think, yeah. And the thing that's hard and like, that's a little tricky about all this stuff too. And, you know, a lot of it is we kind of forget sometimes that there's, there's three steps to assignment. There's your, you know, there's your choices, Right. There's the ranking or decision a family makes, and then there's where you're assigned. And so a lot of times we focus a lot on the first and the third thing, which is who's what's on people's lists and like where did they get assigned? But how families choose in this process is pretty not determinative, but close. And so, you know, like you might have a family that is in an area where they have lower access to higher quality schools, but they're choosing distance over the the quality because of work or childcare needs and you know that's that's a valid choice so like i I, it's really hard to figure out like what the system is doing to we better understand like how and why people are making the choices because they're so determinative of how they get assigned so what do you think that does then um our current assignment and enrollment trends how does it impact the overall bps budget and does it correlate in any way to the opportunity gap in the city it's tough. I mean, we have less kids. Um, you know, I, that's, that trend has changed slightly in the last couple of years. There's been like a leveling and a slight tip up, but we went mm-hmm. through a very long, steady match of less and less kids in the city, um, mm-hmm. decline the school age population for a variety of reasons. Um, and to kind of separate that out, we've seen a really steep decline in BPS enrollment um, over the last, especially over the last decade. Um, it's, it's pretty mm. quick. Um, you know, and, and they're projecting, incre- you know, an incre- another decrease next year. So the FY21 budget includes an assumption that there'll be another 842 or something less kids. Fewer and kids, but the budget went up. It did by about $80 million. Right. So did, did, what's what's going what on? Are we investing? Yeah. What are, what are we investing in? Are we well, investing in half empty schools or are we investing in programs that are going are going to yeah. Reduce the opportunity gap. Yeah. I mean, I think like, so a couple of things. So one is we moved to this weighted student funded formula, I don't know, six, maybe long, maybe eight or nine years ago. If Ross was on the line, he would, he would know the exact date because he was still at the district then. But right. one of the, one of the assumptions you make when you go to weighted student funded formula is that you need to have fully enrolled or semi fully enrolled schools in order to provide full services and programming. And what has happened is as we've had over that last seven years, we've had a decline of thousands of kids from BPS. It's not clear to me that that formula has been adjusted fully yet, although I think there were some attempts this year to kind of mm-hmm. soften that math because yeah, it sounded like it. Yeah. And like, you know, there's, there have been some moves this year to kind of, you know, create maybe a, what would we call a higher foundation of schools or something like that. 
Um, but the reality is, is if you're going to fund on a, on a student basis and you have student enrollment decline, it's going to create stress um, on the system and for specific schools. And so I think that's the first piece. The second piece is that this gets into like more of the weeds of like budgeting and budgeting theory, but there's not schools in the district and leaders in the district principals and teachers don't have the full authority to kind of like fill their classes, if that makes sense. Right. Right. Like there's an assignment system, the district assigns them kids. And so they don't really have any control over whether they have 22 kids in their second grade class versus 19 or 20. And so, I mean, I have been in most schools in the city over the last five years. I would say my observation mm -hmm. is that what you see more broadly is that you see slightly underutilization of classes everywhere. Like right. it's not that like, you know, like it's not, there are some schools that when you just look at publicly available data, you're like, wow, like there are less kids here. Um, yeah. But those are, those are kind of extreme examples and they're more, they're, they're not as many as you'd think. It's more so that when you go around schools and you know, you're a former middle school math teacher and you're kind of counting heads in class, you're like, huh, like this is an inclusion class supposed to have 20, 15 gen ed, five kids with special needs. I see 16 in here. Like, huh. Hmm. Like you're the next class. You're like, huh, like this is supposed to be a general ed class, 22 kids in the class, second grade, I'm at 18. And it's like, that's the kind of stuff that I, I see when I go to schools. Um, and I think that that's what creates strain. Um, because Much you, more gray. Yeah, and it makes it a lot harder to afford the things that folks want to afford at the school level. Um, right. Because of the because way we- no, So you're saying we're just spreading it out. No school, not many schools are particularly full. No. Everyone's full-ish. But that, that definitely has impact on how dollars can be spent. They're not as efficient as you know what you were referring to earlier in the conversation about Boston Latin School, where they're packed to the gills. And so dollars go a long way. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. So I, I think that's a piece. Then, but the thing I want to say too is like, no public policy is like follows the law of gravity. Like, we don't have to like do it this way. Right. If people felt like the current funding system was inadequate, then we should talk about changing it. You know right. what I mean? Or like right. if you want to think about how resources are spread around differently, we should have that conversation. I think the part that I get worried about sometimes is that we often look at policies and regulations as like having the rule of science. It's like, it's fine. It's just the way we do it. You can change it. Um, you can shift. Yeah. And so I, I well, think that's, that's the big worry for me. And then I think like there's also, I think the other part I would say is like, and this gets to like putting my like, all sector hat on is that we don't really plan schools as a city. And so that results in the inability for those different systems which run parallel to each other to like adapt to what's going on. And, right. you know, and I mean, we could argue that that's a failure of public policy, but you know, when a bunch of charter schools were authorized to grow in 2010, including Roxbury prep, you know, most, almost all of those schools had significant middle school and high school seats all approved at the same time. Mm, and so if right. you work off the assumption that those schools fell, which they did, and student population is not increasing, which it wasn't, then we should like there could have been an opportunity to actually like talk more about these issues, but we don't have a we don't have a function to talk about these things as a city. Um and I do think there's just a lot of value lost for kids in schools in that. Yeah. I, that's a very good point. Now we're currently at the beginning of, as we're taping this right now, we're at the beginning of this COVID-19 crisis. And yeah. so there's a massive shift that's just happened. All students are home from school, no matter where they go to school. 
And um, as you probably know, Boston Public Schools, but I think City of Boston also provided a Chromebook to anyone who needs one to help facilitate learning at home. And you talked a bit about this. I love your Friday um, uh, email and and people should sign up for it. Um, But you talked about this. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, talk to me a little bit about this because I'm curious what you think about how much learning can actually be accomplished online. You you were a teacher, yep. And do you and, think I, and I am a home going... and I'm a homeschooler now. So I can... and you're a home. Yes, you are a parent. You are a homeschooling parent, as I, am I. <laughs> um, but do you think? Do you think how much kids are able to learn, or how much learning happens, is going to be different based on the school that the student attends? You know, in in other words, will the students bring home? their high or low quality seat with them. Oh, that's, yeah, wow, that's interesting. Um, I mean, say a couple things. Like one, you know, we, and it's April 3rd today, I think we're still all in, I would say crisis mode as people and as a system. There's, you know, a lot of the emergency stuff that needed to be deployed quickly really has been. And like, you know, you know, hats off to the city and folks, the district that like literally yeah. ran around to make sure folks had food and materials and all this other stuff. Like, and now that's done, right? And mm-hmm. we're going to be out of school for at least another month and maybe longer. Mm-hmm. And so the question is now, like, what what do we do during that during that in the interim? And so, so I'd say I'd say two things. One is that. You know, people have a much greater, I think, understanding of homeschooling now, jokes aside. Um, You know, the reality is, based on my own cursory research, is that, you know, you don't need as much work and direct instruction time during homeschool because Mm -hmm. you're, you know, the kids are getting more individualized attention. They're in a small environment. There aren't as many breaks. You don't get to socialize. So, like, you know, the idea of giving kids, you know, eight or nine hour a day, six hour a day at home is probably not possible. And I mean, my kids would kill me after a couple of days, but like, <laughs> yeah. and it's already tough. It's already tough enough for the three of them and me in the mornings. But like, right. so I do think that like, there is like sufficient time in the sense that of course you have families that are working from home and, and can do that. Like, you know, there, there is the capacity, I think, to provide a couple hours of work every day um, for kids to do work and stay active. However, I mean, like I would say that Virtual school is not different from regular school in the sense that if you are not, as a child, getting curriculum that is aligned to the standards of the school, and in some cases the state, many cases the state, it is not based on your level of, of content expertise or skill at that time, doesn't involve feedback and kind of graded and assessed work by someone who's managing that, the ability to remediate. Um, those pieces and then putting aside anything you'd say around kind of deeper learning and project-based learning, you know, aside Mm. with absent that you don't learn in school, right? So why wouldn't, why would you learn on a computer? Right. Right. And so I I think that at best, what folks are doing right now is hoping, helping kids tread water, right? Like let's make sure they don't fall too far behind that. So that's fine for some folks. And I think like, you know, in, you know, last week there were a bunch of pieces in different national papers about calling this the, you know, the white collar shelter in place, right? There's a lot of folks who do not have the privilege to be at home and homeschooling their kids right now because they have to go to work um, or, you know, have so much toxic stress because they're unemployed that that's just not possible to do. Um, So connecting all these, I'd say this, 
the way we've landed in Massachusetts is that there is no central understanding or requirement for how education is being delivered for the next four to five weeks. Mm-hmm. There's guidelines, there's resources, and people have worked hard on developing those, but there's no clarity and there's no consistency across municipalities or even within municipalities. And so what I am deeply, deeply, deeply worried about right now is that there is some subset of kids who are getting what I described, the equivalent of school. They have daily Mm -hmm. interaction with teachers in some form. They are getting work that's appropriate to their level and testing them. They're getting feedback um, and they are doing some other exploratory activities to kind of keep their brains moving and growing. Yeah, right. And then there's some kids that I think that have access to some broad stuff like online and on TV. And then there's kids that just have nothing. And so what I really, really, really worry about is what happens when we come back to school. And that's, mm. that's really what all I am thinking about kind of honestly, professionally and personally right now is mm-hmm. the amount of learning loss and trauma that kids will, trauma recovery kids will need when they return to school. And mm. You know, and I think I wrote this today, but the thing that's, I mean, really hard for me to think about as an educator is like just you kids learn so much in the spring. It's like when it comes together for a lot of them, you know, February to May is like when kids like break through and learn how to read. You know, Mm -hmm. it's when kids learn how to, you know, simplify fractions for the first time or get like their first like really good grade on an essay. Like this is when it kind of comes together, like spring musical performances. And like, I really worry about the kids losing that. And, and like really just asking the question, like how we're going to replace that and factor in the point that I think, again, like folks, kids are getting radically different experiences right now and access to information. Um, and this, I mean, we thought we had achievement gaps in Massachusetts and Boston before this, they're about to expand pretty radically. And are you, are you particularly worried about students with disabilities and at risk students well, at risk of dropping out it's, or it's kind double, of double indemnity for them? I mean, the regular system yeah. already often does not suit their needs. And now we've removed what's what services we had in place them to begin with. Um, right. in, in an interesting take, like it took a little while to kind of navigate some of this stuff because, you know, from a legal or public policy perspective, you could argue that, you know, providing remote schooling without accommodations, you know, creates inequity for folks who require more. Um, Get that. I understand the kind of legal argument, but like the common sense part of me says that like something's better than nothing, right? Like let's assume that something is better than nothing. And so it took a little bit of wrangling, but I think, you know, ultimately I think, you know, federal government, the states and cities gone to a place where they've kind of at least established some baseline for how they want to provide services and how they'll kind of assess those things. Um, but yeah, it's hard not to, like we're in the middle of it right now, but it's it's really hard to understand like the generational costs of what we're going through right now. Um, yeah. I'm just talking about academics. Like we might right. have kids out of school, I mean, for what, a match to May? Like, I mean, I mean not a match to May, match to September even, right? Like, let's Well, right. I was going to say, and if and if we can get back to school in September too. And I think it's it's academic. It's all, and then, then you, you know, you, you talked about this a little bit, but there's also mental health impacts. And- you know, it makes me wonder, what, you know, should school even look like what school looked like when it closed or should it look like something entirely different? And is anyone thinking about that? Because I, I noticed that teachers unions have taken a strong stand, you know, um, to act differently than they do in schools. And so some teachers are jumping in 
with both feet and both hands and they're doing exactly what you said they're 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 bringing all of their lessons and and themselves to this online home study program and and others and I think it probably comes down to leadership at the school level mm-hmm. and teacher leadership some others are are not participating in that way and um so I just wonder like does is does give a remediation a whole new word are there things that we're going to need to provide through our school system as kids come back, whenever they go, go back to school that we didn't have to provide before. Yes. And it's like the kind of thing that like one group or one person can't really answer because the needs are so significant. I mean, you are talking about, here are the things that I think need and should look different. One, family engagement. Like engagement families with schools needs to be valued every single day, not just in a crisis. Right. And so yeah. the fact that in so many schools, especially in schools with historic and marginalized kids, there were just fundamental difficulties in communicating with families. Right. Just getting them information, like right. not let alone like how your kids doing in school and what's the relationship, but literally like school is closed or like you need to like follow these health requirements. I mean. The dentist knows your phone number. Right. right. So like right. the fact that we they, they just really expose like our, our systemic failure to really engage families in schools in an effective way. I think right behind that is mental and social emotional health counseling. I think that we have to account for the fact that kids are gonna have to basically re-socialize. Um, mm-hmm. That is one piece of this. Like they just they, they're they're gonna be rusty. Um, yeah. and then, you know. Unfortunately, there are, there are kids all over this country of different backgrounds and different races and different classes that live in homes that are toxic. And like, yeah. I, you know, and those kids are going to be coming back to school um, and yeah. they're going to need help. Yeah. I, I, the academic costs are massive to me. I don't even get, I don't even know how to get my head around that about like, right. the, because like, I remember someone was saying to me the other day, it's like, well, why can't like you just repeat every kid? And I was like, that's interesting, but like our system is built to hold a certain number of grades. And so like, it won't, we won't fit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Everyone needs to extend by a year. Yeah. Just, we just don't literally have the space. might be interesting to like think through the space constraint of it, but it's an interesting idea. Um, I know. Well, you know what? We did just talk about how there's space available. So maybe, maybe it's a shift. Crazier things have have happened. Um, And then I think, then, then the last piece, I think very last, but this last and the least is like, really rethinking like how technology was utilized in this process to support learning and making that part of everyday learning. Um, yeah, I put that last beautiful. because unfortunately I keep seeing it first. Um, mm. And tech is a tool. It's not, it's not the thing, right? The thing right. is the it's teaching. It's a medium. Yeah. Right. And so like, it's important. We got it. It's necessary to have that stuff in place. It's not going to solve the problem, but it should be helping drive the other things. Um, so that's a lot of stuff. Um a lot of stuff. And well, I, I have one more thing too. Go ahead. Because there, because right. So, 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 as the COVID nineteen crisis was was starting to kind of, beca- we became very, very aware of it um, in Boston, which was around mid March. Um, yep. There was also an announcement from Desi and oh. the, which is the Department of Education, um, and for the state mm-hmm. and the city of Boston announced that they had signed a memorandum of understanding and that yep. the state start to intervene in some fashion, which is supposed to be sorted out over the next several weeks in Boston public schools, specifically in East Boston and Mm -hmm. in Charlestown. What do you, what do you think will happen here? Will it be useful to have the state intervening and paying so much attention to Boston as 
we kind of regroup as um, as a city, um, you know, a city that educates students. What do you think the impact will be there, and and how how can that relationship be most helpful? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll start by saying that regardless of whether people agree with the decision um, for the state to intervene in any way, I would kind of I would make the supposition that that there's a basis for it. Not because of, quote unquote, how Boston is doing, but because when we changed state laws here in 1993 about how local governments would support kids in schools, there was a grand deal, which was that the state was going to create frameworks to ensure that there was, and the term wasn't used at the time, but real equity to ensure that kids Mm. in different neighborhoods and different communities we're going to have access to the same level of resources and also the same level of supports to make them successful. We're going to hold ourselves accountable for that. And in exchange for that, we the, the state committed to a massive, massive progressive tax system and redistributive tax system to, to make that happen. And so that was like another grand bargain. And so I would argue that like if you're taking any money or assistance from the state, then this is kind of just part of the deal, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's just kind of contract theory. So, so with that in context, I would say the, the history of state intervention as a public policy medium is spotty at best, right? Like, mm-hmm. hasn't played out great in other states. It's played out badly in some other states. And even if you look at Massachusetts, you know, and, and I say this with no sophistication or enough knowledge of the, of the topics, but I think the thought is, well, Lawrence seemed to like really work and seemed to get the ball moving. Like Holyoke kind of like fits and starts, not really sure where it's going. And then people kind of forget that Southbridge is in receivership, right? And mm-hmm. so for me, it's less so around the public policy tool. It's more about the what and the people, right? And so the, there's one piece of it that I think this, that's, that's really, really important, which is like one of the elements of the MOU was greater rigor around high school standards, Um, And I was really excited to not just see that in the MOU, but to know that was already baked into BPS's plan, because that has been a a significant problem in in high schools across the city for a long time. And so like, you know, and and I'll take the superintendent's public comments at their word. Like if this is about adding additional resources and partnership to solve issues, like who says no to that? Um, Right. Right. right? And she's been adamant about moving the city to a, a mass core standard. Yeah, and, and, which people have been lobbying for forever, and she's she's kind of said it from day one, and it, it you know it sounds like she's very much backing that. Yeah, and move. it's really and it is really hard, I think, not just for Boston, but I'd say you know there's a whole two hundred something page report to back this up, but really any city. Tell me a city or a town which has you know a diverse population of Boston that can't do a better job improving academic outcomes by subgroup, raising mm. rigor in high schools, serving kids with special needs better. And well, because it's Boston fixing buses, I guess that's the fourth one. But like, right. like these are common sense things that even we should be doing just anyways. Now I get like the timing of all this is 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 horrible given all the other things that are going on. Yeah. Um, but you know, when I was a teacher and I was a principal, you had to walk and chew gum at the same time. Like if you got right. like, you got big problems you got to deal with, but like kids still got to learn. Special ed, kids with special needs need to be served well, right? Like we don't have to, we don't have to wait for that. Um, well, I think it also, it comes down to exactly what you started with, which is we have to pay attention to every seat seat. and every student in that seat. 
And so it, it makes me wonder, do you, do you, and maybe it's too early to know, but do you think that this will change your work at Boston School? Oh, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. Maybe it changes the assessments. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I'm not sure. I mean, I do think that, you know, there are some schools that we work with that are going to enter, like in the short term, yes, full stop, yes, there are schools we work with that are going to kind of enter the kaleidoscope network. So in the short term, yes, like we'll kind of have our, you'll kind of have like our nose and some deeper learning stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. But like I think on the... On the broader term, like, you know, the district has invested a lot of money and staff capacity in the 33 schools they've identified as chronically underperforming. Um, yeah. You know, I'm our goal is to add value. And so if they've got a lot of money and resources and staff and a theory on that, like go after it. Um, yeah. So I think that I, I, I don't know if it necessarily affects our day to day work. It definitely like infects the environment, I guess. Um, yeah. I think the only other piece, I guess I would add to this is that, um, it'll be, I'll be, I I do think that there's parts of this that I'm curious how they're going to play out only because, you know, the state is actually providing direct resources and staffing on things. Um, Mm. but it's not clear to me, like, I guess this will get hashed out in the next 60 or whatever days, but like, you know, when you got two people that sign an agreement, how do you break a tie? Like who decides, right? And so, you know, I'll be curious when when we get further down the road on this stuff, um, if the city and the state are on different pages about things, which you assume they're going to be, I'll just be curious to understand like what the process for that is. Yeah, that's interesting. So last question, given that you are an investor in um, schools across the city of Austin and some of our listeners are um, philanthropists or others or, or community partners who all invest in schools as well. What do you think the most important thing is for all of us to be doing right now? Giving money to anything that provides healthcare equipment or low income or unemployed people cash. Mm-hmm. That's like my direct answer. <laughs> like what you should be doing yeah, right now. Yeah. It's like, if you have money, you should be like helping buy masks um, donating to organizations that buy masks. Um, and you should be ensuring that low income and folks who aren't employed literally have cash. Like that's, I think probably the highest value of a philanthropic dollar right now is my guess. And yeah. then I think in the long term, especially relates around education. I just think that we, I think, I just think we really owe kids. And, you know, I taught a student in Roxbury prep, um, years ago who, who moved from new Orleans after Katrina. Um, and he was adopted, um, here, um, you know, distant relative, you know, we never had this conversation in front of him, but like understood that, you know, he was, you know, that he was orphaned. There's a immediate family mm-hmm. died there. Um, and I'm thinking about the amount of, and he's great kid. They're all great kids, but he's, he, you know, he is eventually blossomed and is good and an adult now and I'm old and all that stuff. <laughs> and I'm not trying to create a false equivalence between Katrina and what we're going through now. But if you have something this disruptive and this kind of stressful for kids, I just, I worry deeply about the amount of resources it's going to take to, to get them to where they need to be. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm worried about. I think that's a, I think that's a very important point. Um, and a, a perfect thing for all of us to think about and how we can all participate in helping each of those kids as, um, through this and, and, and when we all come back online. 
or yeah. go offline, I guess. <laughs> I, I don't, I mean, I'm just glad that I know it's today. It's Friday. I'm just proud of myself. Yeah. That I know it's that day of the week. I only know because I got your newsletter. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, well, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Today. Yeah, likewise, and to you and everyone you listen to any of this playing a little bit later. You know, please say, say, please say, stay safe, um, stay healthy, and, and all your family and loved ones too. And wash your hands. And wash your hands. <laughs> Thanks, Will. Bye, Joe. Thank you for joining my conversation with Will Austin, founder of Boston Schools Fund. You can follow his work at www.bostonschoolsfund.org. I highly recommend signing up for his weekly Friday email. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.